welcome in. It's Downtown the Podcast, episode number 109. From the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell with you. Our daily show, Downtown, originates from here weekdays from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Zone Radio stations of Maine. Streaming audio on our website at downtownwithrichkimball.com. Our show brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Interesting conversations on the show this time around with journalist and writer Josh Karp and singer-songwriter Sass Jordan. Visit with us as well and uh, talk about her new album. But uh, Let's get things underway by catching up with Josh Karp. He's the author of A Feudal and Stupid Gesture about Doug Kenny and the National Lampoon, uh, their adventures into film as well with Animal House, Caddyshack, and more. He uh, co-produced the documentary in the making, The Completion of Orson Welles' final film, The Other Side of the Wind, and always a wide-ranging conversation when we have a chance to catch up with Josh Carp. Hey, Rich, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, you bet. What are we going to talk about? We got enough for about four shows here. <laughs> uh, how are you? Uh, how are you managing these uh, unique times we're in in America? Uh, you know, I, it, I, it's funny. I mean, it's, you know, like everybody, good and bad, probably. You know, um, it's a, it's it's a struggle. I have you know to work with four kids at home, um, attempting to go to school. So uh, that <laughs> my mornings are not as productive as they could be. But you know, overall, I mean, I've been—we've been really lucky. Nobody we know is sick. Um, you know, I still have work, and uh, you know, it could be worse. I know there are a lot of people who, you know, are really going through miserable times. But we're—I uh, don't know. It's you know, it's, it's family-wise, it's been kind of kind of interesting. You know, we're all doing stuff together we wouldn't ordinarily do all the time. Mm. So uh, that's good. How about Man, you? Four kids. Wow. See, I got one. And I feel like the, the plate spinner on the old Ed Sullivan show. <laughs> how, old, how old is yours? He's six. Oh, okay. So is, he's not, is he doing Zoom classes and all that stuff? No, no. He, his class, he's in kindergarten, and they've had a couple of meetings. Right. He wants no part of that. He'll watch Good from the him. other side of the room. He doesn't participate. He's like, no, no, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Good for him. And good for you because you don't have to manage his uh his academic career at this point no he's I'm moved fine. on he said i'm i'm a first grader now i'm, I'm that's behind me <laughs> okay great that's kind of how i handled college i just declared that i was out <laughs> my youngest is in sixth grade and he checked out without telling us right at the start of the virus and he's like the only one who's ever been a really conscientious student and all of a sudden we got this email and they're like you know francis hasn't turned in 55 to 60 assignments and we were like oh, oh okay so it's, it's like whack-a-mole it's like anytime you know you think everybody's doing well the one who you don't think that's how it always is, is. problem well yeah. uh, a lot of things i want to cover with you today Let, let's start with uh, uh the story you mentioned to me online a little while ago we had gilbert gottfried on back uh, early in the year you've got what sounds like a really interesting gilbert gottfried story <laughs> yeah i mean it it, it was it's like honestly, one of one of my favorite things that you know when I kind of go like, wow, I, I have a good job, you know, and I get to do all kinds of weird stuff. So this is I can't remember the year. It's probably like two thousand two or three or something like that. I, I got assigned 
by Playboy to do a story about um, the life and death of Charles Rocket, who got fired for swearing on SNL um, and was, you know, the first cast after the original, you know, group was all gone. Mm. And uh, it, it was, a, you know, I know you're saying he's, he's from Bangor, and it was a horrible, grim story. He was this incredibly talented guy, um, you know, who had, you know, really difficult inner life that people didn't know about. So there, that was not fun. But I got to, uh, you know, Gilbert was one of the people I interviewed. And uh, I don't know, <laughs> you know, it, what it was like if you talked to Gilbert off air. But my experience of him was that he is a fairly mild person, mm-hmm. not at all like his on-air persona. And, uh, you know, and, and so I would inter- I interviewed him like three times. And, you know, and he'd just be like, you know, very, you know, apologetic and very, uh, you know, he'd be like, is this a good time? Is this a good time, Josh? Is this okay? You know, and, and I was like, God, you know, so it's so funny that this was Gilbert Gottfried. He's this sweet kind of mild-mannered, you know, shy almost guy. So time goes on. I write the story, um, and uh, and my editor reads it, and he's like, this is just such a horribly grim story. And it, it was too soon after Charlie's death to really, you know, have perspective. So it got killed, as they say in the business, which is, you know, I got paid and we agreed not to run it. About a month later, I'm driving down the highway um, and uh, I get a call and uh, <laughs> I answer it and it, it's Gilbert. And he goes, Josh, Josh, um, hey, it's Gilbert Godfrey. Is this a good time? Is this okay? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, of course, this is a fine time. And he said, oh, God, I just, you know, you wanted to find out, you know, what happened with, you know, your story about Charlie, you know, when it's going to run and, you know, you know, you know, what issue I can pick up. I said, you know, Gilbert, I, I was like, you know, I, I, I hate, you know, you, you helped me so much with this. You know, I, I hate to tell you this, but the story was killed. And there was like dead silence. <laughs> and he became Gilbert Godfrey. <laughs> and he goes, oh, and I, I will do the worst invitation. And he goes, oh, my God. God, he goes, your story got killed by a porno magazine? <laughs> he goes, he goes, wait, wait, I know a guy at Hustler who might be willing to take this story. <laughs> and then and I'm like, and I'm driving and I'm like, oh my God, he goes, no, 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 no. You know who has great articles? Leg Show. He goes, that's the one you ought to do. And literally, I, I, I'm just, I'm just dying because it's like, it's almost like he's been setting me up for the entire time we've been talking to each other for this moment, he's never done the Gilbert voice. And he just sat there and literally I spent like eight minutes driving on a highway, veering all over the place with Gilbert naming every dirty magazine that was ever published <laughs> and suggesting, you know, where the article could go in between, you know, <laughs> what layouts and things like that. But it was, it was just so great. And I remember like literally, pulling off the highway in Chicago because I couldn't drive anymore. And when we got off, I, I couldn't stop laughing. And all I could think was, you know, oh, you know, okay, this is good. This is, you know, like the worst assignment I've ever had. And this just turned into one of the you know, most fun things. I've I ever, love it. Yeah. We didn't, we didn't know what to expect. He's got the reputation of, of, of being in character when he, when he does interviews and, and we weren't sure. And he started that way. And then he let down his guard fairly quickly and we talked with him a little bit about uh, the documentary and and he was great I mean, he was still funny but it was in his normal speaking voice and uh, i found him to be a really engaging guy oh he was great i mean he was and it was it was you know just one of those things where you remember how funny fun really funny people are <laughs> you know like you know some people are you know 
can be really funny. But people who are funny like him can just turn it on at a moment's notice and just, just kill you. And that was, you know, it was just such a great great experience. It was like I was having my own personal Friars Club road <laughs> of me <laughs> impromptu driving down the Kennedy Expressway. So We're talking with Josh Karp here on downtown. Let's talk a little bit more about the, the Charlie Rocket story because it's fascinating. Like I, He's from Bangor, although nobody seems to know when he was here or how long he spent in Bangor and, and the whole Saturday Night Live story, you know, if it happened now, I'm not sure anything would happen. Heck, it's happened to other people. He, he dropped an F-bomb, which, from what I've read along the way, may or may not have been intentional anyway, but uh, the backstory on him is pretty fascinating, too. Yeah, and, and you know, it's it's such a, you know, it was, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I tend to deal with, you know, subjects that are not super heavy. Um, even, you know, in cases of people dying, you know, it's usually not as, as difficult as Charlie's story was trying about. But but first of all, he, I, I think, really was not, that, you know, there's always, it's always been said that Bill Murray swore on the show and that Paul Schaefer swore on the show before Charlie did. But Charlie kind of took the fall for that mm. cast. Um, and I I seem to remember they got rid of everybody except for Eddie Murphy, who kind of joined the cast mid-season. And that was the season that it was, I think, John Dominion had taken over for Laura right. Michaels. And it was just a, a mess. I mean, the show was not, you know, it was not going well. And they, they you know, realized only Eddie Murphy was, was salvageable. But Charlie was the star that year. And, uh, you know, his his back, you know, his, his story before that was really exceptional. Um, you know, in working on that story, I, uh, I got to interview Chris France from The Talking Heads um, and, uh, and Gus Van Sant, the filmmaker, both of whom had gone to Rhode Island School of Design with uh, with Charlie. And, you know, it's one of those things, you know, like when you hear great athletes say, you know, that guy was better than me. Mm. And that was the general consensus. I mean, he went to school with all these incredible, you know, incredibly talented artists and, uh, you know, who had you know, a great deal of success. And he was, he was the guy, he was the one they thought, you know, like he could do anything. Um, I, I interviewed, um, he, he was one of eight siblings and, uh, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, you interviewed half of them and they had had a perfectly normal life. And then you interviewed the other half and it was, you know, really, you know, difficult, horrible childhood. Um, and uh, but you know keep kind of keeping up appearances. And I, I remember his sister telling me that you weren't allowed to look in a mirror in the house if you were a kid because wow. that was you know some forbidden you know show of vanity. Mm-hmm. And uh, so th- I mean that was really tragic. And then you know he went on to have you know a, a pretty good career as as an actor. Um, he was on Moonlighting. You know he played uh, Bruce Willis's brother. He was in Dumb and Dumber. You know he was somebody who always worked. Um, and he was a guy who was a you know talented artist on the side, but and he the one thing I, I always took away was that he was the everybody you talked to said he was the most stable person hmm. they'd ever known. He was the person you know he he was married for you know from you know college on I think he had one son um, he uh, but he was like you know he was this smart loyal stable guy who everybody went to all the time 
for, you know, when they were in trouble or when they needed advice and stuff. And I think inside the combination of, uh, you know, what he'd gone through as a child, uh, the way he'd kind of compensated for it. And then the, the thing that happened with Saturday Night Live, you know, when I started out, um, I was like, you know, that, you know, the thing with Saturday Night Live couldn't have killed him. You know, that, that could not have been it. Cause that just seems almost too, you know, crazy. You know, that, that's like such an obvious explanation. Right. But one of the things that I did find out was that the morning he killed himself, uh, there was, he had finally agreed to do an SNL reunion show, which he had oh. always refused to do. And there was actually like a limo from Saturday Night Live waiting in his driveway in Connecticut oh. to take him to tape his segment when his wife noticed he was missing. So wow. it was it was it was such a horrible story. I mean, you know, it was just one of those things where your heart just went out to somebody, and uh, and it was you know just really you know kind of really really a sad story. But he was he was an exceptional guy who was really talented, and I think you know just beat himself up over this thing that was. You know, he got the biggest break a guy in that business can get. Mm-hmm. And then it disappeared kind of almost just by by somebody's whim that he was the one, you know, that, that you know, that, that was going to be the thing they'd fire everybody over. Uh, let me ask you about Bill Murray. How many times have you interviewed him through the years? You know, I never actually interviewed him. I spoke to him once briefly on the phone <laughs> um, over a totally <laughs> this, this is kind of funny. I, I live. Uh, you know, three miles from where Bill Murray grew up. And I, you know, I caddied very briefly at the country club, uh, you know, where, where he caddied the caddy shack is based on um, my father-in-law and he both went to the same Catholic high school in Chicago in uh, the suburbs called Loyola Academy. And uh, one of my father-in-law's best friends grew up with, with Bill and, uh, and on several <laughs> And let's see, at least three different occasions, I had reason to want to interview him. And each time he, uh, you know, this guy would be like, I'll try to do what I can. <laughs> and and it was it was every Bill Murray, trying to get a hold of Bill Murray story you've ever heard, except it's the one where he doesn't show up at the end, <laughs> somehow <laughs> magically. He, uh, and, and when I went to interview him for the National Lampoon book, I recall um, they had had a class reunion. And he told my father-in-law's friend, he said, you know what? He's like, give me the guy's number. Give me his email. He's like, I want to talk to him. He says, I intend to talk to him, but you just got to understand I'm probably never going to talk to him. Because that's just how I am. And that that literally has been the setup every time. Um, And then what happened was I I got involved in a project of like a – like – just an associate producer helping people get comedy people for a, um, a documentary about this famous comedy teacher from Chicago. And, uh, and he, um, and they said, you know, God, if you could get Bill Murray and Bill had studied with this guy and, uh, that, you know, and, and knew him very well. And it, I think it got a, you know, a honorary degree from someplace for him when the guy was sick. And, uh, was it Del so, Close? Yeah, it was Del Close. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and, and so I thought, you know, and, and I was like, well, you know, see, and I was like, I don't know if I want to cash in all my Bill Murray chips on this, but, you know, I'll give it a shot. And this was the first thing that he really responded to, right? So 
he said, um, you know, he's like, yeah. He's like, give me the guy's number. So, you know, one day I get some call from a place. I still have it on my, you know, my, <laughs> my voicemail, um, which it will, it will die with my, with my phone. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, and I get this message, and, you know, and he's like, you know, hey, hello, Mr. Carp. This is a friend of, you know, my father-in-law's friend's name. He said, I went to, uh, you know, St. Phillips or whatever you know, school they've gone to. He's like, please call me back. And so I was like, it takes, I don't, there are about five people in the last 20 years where I've really just been like massively nervous to speak to them. <laughs> and, and each time it's worked out really oddly. Um, and, you know, the most comparable person was, was Jack Nicholson, which was just absolutely terrifying. Um, and I was, I was like a blithering idiot during. So he called. Eventually, he said, you know, text me when's a good time to call. I texted him a good time to call. He called a totally other time. <laughs> you know, like, he's like, oh, yeah, I'll call them. And then he called me a different time. Um, Bill Murray did. And we got on the phone, and, and, you know, he said, so what's the deal? And I said, you know, we're do- you know I'm kind of helping out with this documentary about Del Close. And, uh, and he said, you know, so, oh, he said, you know, well, so what's the deal? And I, I told him a little bit about it. And he said, now, how are, why are you involved? And I said, oh, you know, I wrote. You know, I, I co-produced the documentary with um, with somebody who works with the producer, and I, uh, you know, and I, and they knew I'd written a book about Doug Kenny, <laughs> and uh, you know, and, and that's why. And he just went totally stone cold. No, oh. <laughs> and and he said, said, well, I'm going to have to read that book, and that was it. And wow. I, was, you know, and I was trying to kind of make make up for it, but it was not. Not salvageable. Nicholson went a lot better, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> the consolation. Wow. But, but it was, uh, yeah. So, you know, and I mean, and I get it too. You know, I mean, everybody wants a piece of the guy, you know, and uh, and he does what he wants, you know. And he and if he's if something bugs him, he's just, you know, I, you never know when you catch somebody on a bad day. But you know, he was, yeah. It was like it was one of one of the few things. I mean, I, I've had a lot of people, you know. In my, you know, my job, but you know, you kind of have a lot of people close doors on you. It doesn't usually stick with you like that. I was just like, oh, Bill Murray, no. <laughs> <laughs> like my kids are like, how is Bill Murray? And I'm like, I don't want to talk about it. Oh, that's awful. Well, I want to talk about some of the things yeah, you've got coming up. Some interesting projects, to say the least. You're working on a story about the making of Caligula? Yeah, I wrote it. Um, and for uh, for airmail, which is uh, Graydon Carter from Vanity Fair's new uh, like online magazine, and uh, and what happened was I, I filed it right before uh, the virus hit, and everything you know has come before it as a result mm. because they do so much you know virus coverage and so much political coverage all of a sudden. So I'm waiting uh, for that to be published, but yeah, it was. Uh, you know, I, I, I've done a lot of making of stories, um, so I, it was kind of like a, you know, one of those things where it's like, okay, well, there's a weird, you know, <laughs> weird backstory, and it sure was. I mean, it was really, uh, you know, one of the odder things. I mean, I, I, I remember seeing that movie in high school. Uh, you know, my friends, you know, we were like, yeah, I think it was like 1980 or something. I was like 14. I was at boarding school, and then we, you know, got out, and we were unsupervised, and we were like, oh, let's, you know, sneak in to see Caligula. And, you know, we thought, like, oh, wow, this is going to be like, you know, this is going to be like, 
you know, like looking at Playboy, but better, right? And it was so friggin' gruesome. And, you know, and, and whatever sex there was, it was so weird. And so much stuff happened that I honestly think all of us were kind of like, okay, we're just not going to talk about what happened. We, we just had a conversation the other day about what was what was the more unhinged performance by Malcolm McDowell? Was it Clockwork Orange or Caligula? <laughs> It's funny. I interviewed him, and uh, and he was really he was just great. I mean, he was really, really one of the you know he he was really engaged in talking about it. Got how crazy it was and how funny it was, um, but also you know was was disappointed in what what happened. But yeah, I mean he he really let it fly in that movie, <laughs> um, and and he was and he was really great. You know, he. he I think he sees, you know, sees the humor in that. Helen Mirren was also, she was funny. She was just like, you know, um, you know, she's Helen Mirren. And, you know, she's sitting here talking about, you know, this, you know, insane, semi-pornographic, big-budget movie she was in. And I think she described it as what she said. It was like an irresistible mix of art and genitals or something. Like, like if only she could say it. Uh, but, yeah, it was nuts. I mean, you know, because it was it was – Originally, um, uh, Roberto Rossellini, <laughs> of all wow. people, yeah, had, he had written a treatment for this, and he wanted to do, you know, a thing about Caligula that was really more about Rome in those days and how really bad it was to be a peasant, you know, under that kind of rule. And uh, he decided he wasn't going to do it, and his his nephew, who I think was named Franco, took it to Gorby Dow. <laughs> who was right? I mean, that, that's, that's a logical right next step, right? Yeah. Right. Well, you know, I, I think the, the the thinking process was he had uh, done some rewrites on Ben Hur, and he lived in Italy. <laughs> so he, and, and and he was, I guess, you know, he had written, you know, his story. You know, he had a big interest in history and things like that. So they took it to him. Um, he signed on to do it, and he wrote the script. And then the, the script, and in fact, Malcolm McDowell told me the story about how he, uh, it, it, you know, Gore Vidal kind of, you know, charmed him into taking this role. And he said, well, you know, but who's the money behind it? And he said, don't worry. He said, you know, come have lunch with me in London at the penthouse club. And he's like, the penthouse club? And he's like, yeah, the penthouse club. And so they go there and he goes, I'm, you know, that man over, you know, over there is Bob Guccione. He's he's the, you know, the financier. <laughs> and you know, Malcolm McDowell goes, the pornographer, and he goes, think of them as the Warner Brothers, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> and Guccione was like, you know, he he was the single largest investor, I believe, in uh, both the longest yard in Chinatown. Wow, I didn't and, know that. Yeah, which is just crazy. And he, you know, he was like this really, you know, his backstory was was just totally wild because he had been an artist um like who was you know who a real, like a real painter he wasn't making much of a living he had a family and he started penthouse because he was living in london and he saw that there wasn't anything i guess kind of any on the other side of obscene from playboy <laughs> and so he started kind of pushing the boundary and he sold out everything like immediately so by the mid-70s all of a sudden he's got an empire and he was he was one of the wealthiest men in America, if you can believe that. And and he was really an astute businessman. 
And so he invested, you know, in a couple movies, and they were, you know, huge successes. And I think, you know, it, it's kind of the old story of, you know, like, okay, let's, you know, you know, the, the business is going legit kind of thing, right? <laughs> so we're going to become real movie producers. And yet I think, you know, kind of his, it was the, the whole story is the story of the clash between his instincts as an artist and as a pornographer. <laughs> and, and it really is. I mean, you know, they, they, they talked about having John Houston directed. They talked about having Lena Wertmuller directed. Um, and she wanted to rewrite the script and name it Lena Wertmuller's Caligula. And they couldn't do it because it was already going to be called Gorvy Dahl's Caligula. That was in his contract. Wow. Yeah, and it and it just got crazier from there. My my, fa- my favorite thing is Peter O'Toole. You know, they, they hired this guy to direct it named Tinto Brass, who had directed these kind of weird, you know, kind of Italian softcore porn movies that were, you know, set in like Nazi Germany and things like that. And just totally <laughs> weird, kind of satirical, um, you know, stuff. But you know, definitely pornography and. Uh, and he, so he's directing it. He hated Guccione, and his whole purpose was to screw over Guccione. Meanwhile, they hire Peter O'Toole, and he hates the director, of course. Everybody loves him, though. And um, when John Gielgud, who's in it, shows up, <laughs> O'Toole just walks across the room in front of everybody and goes, well, God, I, like, first I did Gilbert Godfrey, now I'll, I'll do Peter o, a bad Peter O'Toole. <laughs> But he said something like, he goes, Johnny, what's a knight of the realm like you doing in a porno movie? And that was kind of his whole, his whole take on, on everything. So he was impossible, and everybody was impossible. And, you know, and then Guccione reshot the movie afterwards, like, because there wasn't enough, like, of the sex he wanted. So he did it, and then he edited it. And it was just, it was just total madness. Wow. Well, I look forward to it. <laughs> to reading about that when the time comes. And also, this is a, a fascinating project you're working on uh, about the Pittsburgh Crawfords, one of the great teams of baseball history. Yeah, that's, you know, I, I've kind of, you know, after uh, after I, I had, um, you know, finished up uh, the Orson Welles book I worked on and then, you know, participated in a couple film projects, I had had in the back of my mind for a long time that that would make a great story because it's this, you know, weird combination of, um, of something like, you know, if you're going to compare it to TV, it's like, uh, it's, it's like, you know, the movie 42 about Jackie Robinson meets like Peaky Blinders or something like that, because <laughs> it's just this bizarre story because, because the Crawfords were owned by a guy named Gus Greenlee. And just to explain who they were, they were the best team in the Negro leagues and possibly, you know, the history of baseball. And they existed for a fairly short period of time, like 1932. Their, their, their greatness was between 32 and 37. Um, and they met a completely bizarre end um, that I'll try to remember to explain. But their roster was Josh Gibson, you know, the arguably, you know, certainly the greatest home run hitter in the Negro Leagues. Satchel Page, you know, arguably the greatest pitcher, certainly in the Negro Leagues and maybe, you know, one of the greatest pitchers ever. Kind of Oscar Charleston, who nobody really talks about, but if you look at, you know, say like Bill James, who's you know the big baseball stats guru, mm. he's listed as the fifth greatest player. Yeah, we had whoever. a guy on uh, a couple of months ago that's written a biography of Oscar Charleston. Right, right. I, yeah, I, I read that. It's a terrific book. Um, and, 
and yeah, and so I'm sure he, you know, he probably talked about, you know, Charlton was, he was Willie Mays mm. if Willie Mays had Ty Cobb's temper. Right, black. right. Or if, or if Ty Cobb was black. He was just the toughest, you know, guy who ever lived. And I, and he was so great because they're all, <laughs> I'm sure this guy, you know, the author talked about it, but, um, you know, there were all these, you know, stories, you know, of him, you know, they got off the train in some town in the South and there's a whole team and a bunch of Klansmen met them at the station to run them out of town. And he, as I you know, recall, he kind of looked around and he's like, which one of you guys is in charge? <laughs> and, and he tore off the guy's hood and punched him in the face and everybody went running. <laughs> and, you know, he was, you know, just this totally defiant, you know, figure. And, you know, additionally, they had cool Papa Bell, who was, you know, the, you know, famously the turned off the lights and got into bed before the room was dark, you know, the fastest <laughs> guy who ever lived, and Judy Johnson, and all five of those guys are Hall of Famers. But the story, you know, that that I was really interested in is, first you've got, you know, this is just before Jackie Robinson, you know, 10 years before that, 15 years before, and people are talking about integrating baseball. And you've got Gibson, who thinks he's going to be the guy, Satchel Page, who kind of thinks he's going to be the guy, but isn't sure, you know, if he'll, if he'll get there. And then Oscar Charlton, who knows he's never going to be the guy because he's too old. And they're on the field together and they're intersecting lives um, through this period because it's, you know, it's this incredible, you know, Gibson's story is tragic and, you know, kind of, he, he dies right before Robinson plays his first game. And, you know, he dies with a brain tumor, but it's really, you know, kind of viewed as he was driven mad by the inability, you know, to be the person there who integrated baseball and about by his lack of recognition for what he was so good at. Um, you know, Paige is like the ultimate survivor. Um, and, uh, and then Charleston is just, you know, this, this, you know, guy who really basically likes to play baseball and fight. And, 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 and enjoys fighting possibly with baseball. And he's just totally defiant. And their lives are amazing because in the North, you know, they kind of live this weird separate but equal celebrity life. Right. In the South, when they go barnstorming or do spring training, it's still, every, you know, it's the Jim Crow South. And then they go in the winter, they go to the Caribbean where they're gods. And they can do whatever they want. They're above everybody else. And... So, you know, it's it's the story of their lives and then also the owner, who is a guy named Gus Greenlee, uh, who is a numbers runner, which is, you know, that was kind of like an illegal lottery. And he ran this jazz club in the area and uh, got it in his mind, you know, in, in Pittsburgh in this area called The Hill, um, that he was going to just start the greatest baseball team, you know, he could, he could start. And... Across town was a guy named Cumberland Posey, who owned the Homestead Grays, who were kind of the Yankees of the Negro League. Right. And they were owned. At, Cumberland Posey was an aristocrat. He was an aristocratic black guy in Pittsburgh. His family was the wealthiest family in Pittsburgh, and he was tough and he was ambitious and he was a great athlete. And Greenlee just stole half his team from him after he got Satchel Page. So the two of them spent the next five years fighting for control of the league and control of the players. Greenlee has this amazing team. He restarts the whole league with other numbers runners as the owners because that's the only way they can finance it. Satchel Page just kind of vanishes whenever he wants to play for another team. 
and get paid better. And the whole thing, you know, that 35, I think, was their great season where they were just, you know, better than the 27 Yankees. But it all ended because in 37, during spring training in New Orleans, a guy approaches Satchel Page <laughs> wearing a white, you know, white suit, you know, what Panama suit or whatever. And he says, you know, hey, you know, uh, Trujillo would like you to come down right. and play for the national team uh, in the Dominican. <laughs> and Satchel Page is like, oh, okay. And he offers him a ton of money. And Page brings down Cole Papa Bell and he brings down Josh Gibson. And it turns out they're basically, if they don't win, they're going to get killed. Exactly. Yeah, we talked to a guy who wrote a book about that experience, too. Right. That's a terrific book as well. Yeah. So it, it's kind of, you know, it, it's a combination of what those guys wrote about, um, you know, with with Gibson and with, uh, and then with the, you know, the story of them being on this incredible team together. And I, and I think, you know, my, my thought has always been that kind of less about, you know, the baseball and just more about what a, you know, an experience, the three of these guys being on this team owned by a numbers runner um, <laughs> were, and, you know, and, and what it was, what it was to be, you know, the, you know, the two owners, you know, were guys who would have been, you know, millionaires. In, in white, if they were white, you know, it's, everybody is, is hamstrung by this whole, you know, all of them are told their whole lives, if only you were white. So, you know, it, it's about what that life was like, uh, you know, at, at, in that place in time. That's awesome. I look forward to hearing more about that. So much more I want to talk about. Uh, well, we got to have you come back uh, again in a few weeks because I, I want to talk about uh, two other projects that you're working on and also want to uh, go back and, and chat with you about Chevy Chase and about, I'm, for my money, the most interesting guy from that uh, Animal House crew, uh, Bruce McCall, who's probably carved up the most consistent career of everybody. Yeah, no, Bruce McCall was, was, was he was great. I mean, he, you know, um, just a, a really interesting guy and a great, you know, life story. And it, it's kind of funny that given the, you know, the way the world is now and how we all want to live in Canada. And Bruce, I remember <laughs> telling me, that, you know, he grew up in, I think, Simcoe, Ontario, and he would just in, envision that in America, everything was in Technicolor, and all the kids were riding brand new Schwinn bikes, and all the dads were driving <laughs> for that because it seemed so animated down here compared to what life in Canada was like. You know, and now we're all just like, oh, you know, if only we could have the relative calm <laughs> of, of living in Canada. Absolutely. Hey, Josh, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for oh, being with us. Thank you. Anytime is my pleasure. That's Josh Carp here on Downtown the Podcast. And when we come back, we'll talk with singer songwriter Sass Jordan after this word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.
on downtown, the podcast. Canadian singer-songwriter Sass Jordan has been making great music for more than 25 years now. She's got a brand new album out that has been sitting at the top of the Canadian charts for weeks called Rebel Moon Blues. That's a song from the album that she co-wrote called The Key. We had a great time talking recently with Sass Jordan. Great to be here. Nice to see you. Nice to hear you, actually, because I can't actually see you. So I'm sort of doing like, uh, well, I have to imagine what you look like from your voice. <laughs> uh, you know, think Brad Pitt, maybe two years older. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Just like me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm so glad you picked that song. Isn't that funny? I was just talking about that song with my manager about about an hour and a half ago because it's the only song on the record that I wrote. That's why so, I picked that song, other than uh, the fact that it's also uh, oh. it's my favorite song on the album, though. It's great. That is crazy. I am so thrilled to hear that. I can't wait to tell Peter. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> now, people are surprised who've been following your music to, to say, well, this... Uh, this is not her first blues album. I mean, you've you've certainly flirted with blues through the years. You've got such a bluesy sound to your voice. But uh, what made you decide this was the time to just jump right in? Well, you know, I think it has a lot to do with, you know, the fact that I am, I've been doing this for so long. Uh, and I finally now feel that I have enough life experience under my belt to be able to deliver what's called the blues with authenticity and integrity and not just, you know, trying to jump on a bandwagon. I, I, I definitely have the life experience at this point to be able to do this, you know, genuinely from the heart. So you gotta, I think that's the main reason, yeah. You Go got ahead. you got to live a little bit to be able to sing the blues. Uh-huh. You've got that right, <laughs> baby. <laughs> I don't mean that somebody who's younger can't do it. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about for me, my per- personally, you know, for me. Yeah. Well, the key is the original song on the album, but some great covers. How did you go about picking the songs that you wanted to put on this album? Okay, so the weirdest thing is they picked me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even better. I didn't pick them. They came to me. It was like, the, the, the songs came up into my awareness, and they went, yo, I'm next, brah. <laughs> I'm not a brah, I'm a bro, I'm a sis. Anyways, I, I it was like, okay, fine, fine, fine. It, it's really funny, Rich. There was no real struggle. I wasn't going through any kind of like, oh, my God, what the heck am I going to do? Originally, in the beginning, I was like, how am I ever going to find songs uh, out of this massive, I mean, we're talking gigantic, a catalog of songs that fall into the blues category, you know, well, and then all the offshoots of that. But it's exactly like I said, they, the songs just came to me through either uh, my band members or I was listening to like Sirius FM or or I was looking something up on YouTube and one of the songs would just come to me. I mean, there's not a whole heck of a lot of them. There's only seven, right? So, But this was the first seven that came to me and asked me and said, no, they didn't ask me. They said to me, you're allowed to do me. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, How often does that happen in your life? Not, not often enough. I'm, 
I'm glad they did, and I'm glad, uh, yeah, I love the key. That's my favorite, but next to that, of those songs that reached out to you, Palace of the King. Oh, my God, it's just uh, awesome. I know, I love that song. Well, basically, I love every single song on the record, or I wouldn't have done them, but, but uh, yeah, each and every one of them is special to me uh, for all different kinds of reasons. Palace of the King, I, It was a, it's a song... I just, I remember the first time I heard it, I was just absolutely transfixed. I, I loved it and completely forgot about it. And then when we were starting to, to you know, to, to look for the songs for the record, uh, my guitar player, uh, Chris Cadell, sent it to me and said, why don't we do this? And I'm like, oh, my Lord. <laughs> yes, let's do it. And that's kind of how that one happened. <laughs> You've said before that rhythm makes a great singer. Why is that? Yes. Uh, a thousand percent. Rhythm, feel, time. Uh, these are all the things that convey emotion properly to me in a song or when you're singing. It's it's all about the phrasing and where you put the emphasis and where you take the breath. And that's what makes a brilliant singer to me. For example, uh, um, one of the masters, oh my God, there's so many. So if I say one, that doesn't mean I'm that there aren't a billion others, you know what I mean? But one of the masters, well, two of the masters, I'll come to mind immediately, Paul Rogers, from Bad mm. Company, oh, yeah. uh, Joe Cocker, Aretha Franklin, Gladys Knight. Uh, sadly, we could be here for the next two years. While <laughs> I, yeah, but a, a great, it's very difficult to articulate what I mean by that, but I, hopefully what I've said is helpful. It's just, it's emotion is conveyed through through the rhythm, the rhythm of a song, the the, the the beat. Well, the I, I, I think of an example, even from the world of country music, that no one would say Willie Nelson has got a great voice, but his unique phrasing, his ability that, to that. work around the beat, that's what makes him who he is. There you go. There you go. So you got it. That's exactly right. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't matter what the genre of music is. It's. It's. It's one hundred percent the phrasing for me. Yes. Yes. You mentioned Joe Cocker. What was the experience like a recording with him for the Bodyguard soundtrack? Well, if I had actually recorded with him, I'm sure it would have been brilliant, but... (laughs) 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 Sadly, 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 he was not present when I did uh, my part uh, in that song. It was... Uh, it's a bit of a long story. I don't know how much time you've got. We have time. You uh, tell. Oh, well, please do tell. I'll, okay, I'll try and give you the Coles notes. So, it it the whole thing came about because Kevin Costner, who was the producer and the star of that film, The Bodyguard, was a massive Joe Cocker fan, and he wanted a Joe Cocker uh, song on the soundtrack. Most of it was Whitney Houston, as you probably know. But he wanted to add in like a Joe Cocker song, and the song he wanted was that was a song that's on the record called "Trust in Me." Now that song had been recorded prior to the uh, recording of 
the soundtrack for the film. That song, Trust in Me, had been recorded about four years previously, and they had used a, an Australian singer, sadly I don't know her name, as the uh, duet partner for Joe on that song. Now, Kevin was driving around L.A. one day and heard one of my songs on the radio and went, that's the voice I want on that Joe Cocker song. I want to replace the original and I want to put this, this new voice on it. And that's how I got the part, so to speak. Um, but Joe, because he had already recorded it <laughs> four years prior, was nowhere to be seen. Until, and so then after that, I toured with Joe for four months, four or five months, uh, as as his support act. But I never, ever met him during that four months because we would have to leave after our show every night in order to get to the next gig, to the next town. So I never got to meet him. You know, I, we, we would be there maybe for the first three songs of his set. But I never was there at the end of the set and got to meet him. I never, it never happened until the last night. (laughs) 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 His manager goes, Seth, Joe, Joe, this is Seth. And I'm like, oh my God, it's such an honor to meet you. I love you so much. You're one of my greatest inspirations and heroes. I just think you're one of the greatest singers ever. And thank you so much letting me sing that song with you that was the most extraordinary experience and he's looking at me sort of in a bemused expression <laughs> on his face and he says and he goes what song and his manager jumps in and he goes oh she's hang on but trust him he had no idea <laughs> Oh, like, and to me that was a lesson in showbiz, right there, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen. <laughs> it's all smoke and mirrors. I love it. Uh, we're talking with Sass Jordan here on Downtown. Yeah, you've had so many wonderful albums through the years. Is Rats still your favorite? Um, it's one of them. I have. I'll tell you what. I have three favorite records that I've ever made. One of them is Rats. One of them is something you've never heard of which was a project I did called Something Unto Nothing. And one of them is the this act, this blues one, uh, Rebel Moon Blues. I really, really love it. I love it so much, I'm going to do another one. Ah, that's fantastic. I have to tell you, though, I also loved uh, when you uh, revisited Racine. That was some terrific I love stuff. that record, too, yes. Yeah. Sorry, cut you right off. No, no, not at all. Let's talk about <laughs> acting. What was it like getting to play Janis Joplin on stage and well, love Janis? That was a piece of work because I was not a fan to begin with at all. Um, and I didn't actually want that job. <laughs> <laughs> but what happened? Again, here's another classic, classic success. Oh, yes. So the, the producers of the show flew me to New York to do the audition. And the reason I said, yes, I would love to do this audition had nothing to do with the actual show or the part it was the fact that i would get a free flight to new york and i would get to hang out with one of my best friends loretta for the afternoon in new york (laughs) and then fly home 
I was so ecstatic and over the moon about getting to do this for free that I was like, Whoa! anyways, and I, I'm, I learned the songs. I for not for one second did I think I was going to get the damn job. That was an accident, <laughs> gentlemen. It was a horror. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I can't say no. I can't say no now that they've flown me here for the. I thought for sure, I'm thinking a million years I would get the job. I guess they were pretty desperate. Anyway, <laughs> so I got this job singing 19 Janis Joplin songs a night. And I, Oof. not being a fan prior to the show, uh, was kind of overwhelmed by it. And I had, oh my goodness, if it wasn't for my friend Katrina, I don't know how to made it through. She played Janice as well. She was another, because they had about eight Janices because it was such a punishing mm. piece of work that they needed multiple people to play the part. It was just, ex it was excruciating. Anyways, it, it, in the end, after all that, in the end, what happened was I came out with a great deal of experience under my belt and a huge new respect for the singer Janis Joplin, who was actually brilliant. Not necessarily my my thing, and, and certainly not what I would consider one of my uh, major inspirations, but I now have an enormous respect and totally appreciate her. So that was great. That was a great thing that came out of that. How did you get involved with Canadian Idol? <laughs> An audition, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, all these things make me laugh because they're so silly in retrospect. <laughs> but uh, the, the, my, my agent called and said, you know, um, they, I, I've just got a request for you to come and do an audition for this show they're doing called Canadian Idol. It's kind of like a, a talent show kind of thing. And I went, not a chance, buddy. <laughs> Say no. You know, those cheesy buggers, all they want, you know, it's some cheesy, they're going to ask me to do, because I had been asked to do something like that prior to it. And it was like, we need you for eight years and we're going to pay you $7,000 honorarium. I'm like, <laughs> no. Anyway, so I thought it was a, I thought it was a repeat version of that, of course. So I go, no, 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 I, I'm, I'm not interested. Plus, you know, I'm a singer. I'm not a judge for goodness sake. Anyway, so <laughs> about two days goes by, my agent calls back and <laughs> he says, yeah, do you have any idea how much these people want to pay you? And I'm like, no. What, seven grand? And he's like, uh, no. And then he tells me, I almost faint, and I go, when's the audition? <laughs> I'll be right there. <laughs> That's better than a free plane ticket. <laughs> it was way better than a free plane ticket. <laughs> and I was there with bells on, because let me tell you, this is not an easy line of work to make money in. <laughs> <laughs> So it was delightful, and I enjoyed myself to no end, and I'm so glad that happened. We had the best time for six years. We really did. I, I look back on that with absolute fondness. It was not something I regret in any way, shape, or form. It was fabulous. All right, I have to ask you, uh, what's going on with the kick-ass sass wine and Rebel Moon whiskey? Oh, baby. Booze and blues, I say. <laughs> <laughs> I said, booze and blues. <laughs> well, 
the wine it, it, the wine keeps selling out, so I think we're doing pretty good with yeah. that. Um, and the whiskey is still in the middle of. Well, what happened was we were just about to start getting into the real nitty gritty of it, and then this whole situation that we're all living through right now hit. So it's on hold as you know the world figures itself out. You know what I'm saying? I do. As soon as as soon as we can get back into the you know to the logistics and all of that, we have the juice, we have the bottle, we have the label. We just have to figure out the whole. Um, Oh, we have the producer. It's all like the distillery. Everything is all set up. We just have to get it sorted out. I don't even know. It's like the business end of it, which of course is never has never been my favorite end. <laughs> uh, check out Sass's web page. <laughs> it is sassjordan.com. And most of all, get this new album. It is some great stuff. Uh, love it. Rebel Moon Blues. And yes, I'll say it. I don't care. The key is the best song on there. Listen for yourself and you be the judge. Sass, it has been great to talk to you. Thanks for making a little time for us today. Oh, I thoroughly enjoyed myself. Thank you, Rich, and thank you, everybody, for listening to my silly stories. <laughs> Not silly. Blast to tell. <laughs> we loved it. Be well, Sass. Thank you. Uh, you too. Thank you so much. Sass Jordan talking with us uh, here on Downtown, and uh, she was fun. High energy. And you get that in the music, but we got it in person as well. Yes, the interview, just as high energy as that album, which, by the way, is just great. Yeah, it's been a huge success for her. So uh, congratulations on that, and uh, happy to have her on the program, along with the very talented and funny Josh Karp. And thanks to you for being with us this week as well on Downtown, the podcast brought to you by Cross Insurance. Tell your friends, yell at the neighbors from a safe social distance, and help spread the word about what we do. Give us a review, subscribe. Maybe cash is welcome, but not not required. Okay. Hey, thanks for listening this week. Hope to see you next time right here on Downtown, the podcast. <laughs>